from their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this was an intense podcast imagine you're a fighter pilot and you're in a dog fight with another fighter pilot maybe you're shooting at each other and they're the enemy or whatever and they go vertical because they're going to try to climb over you and then shoot down so they get leverage over you. So you follow them going vertical to try to go vertical faster than them, but you make a small miscalculation. You're going over a thousand miles an hour and maybe your miscalculation is you're seven miles per hour off and suddenly in the middle of your vertical, you stall and your plane starts spiraling down out of control. You lose 5,000 feet of altitude in a matter of seconds. And you have to make a decision within one second, whether you're going to eject or try to hold on to the plane and survive. If you make the wrong decision, you're going to die. If you make another wrong decision, you're going to lose a $70 million plane and you still might die. And what is going wrong with the plane? How do you fix it? So Hassard Lee wrote a book, which I really loved. I read the book before his team even reached out for him to go on the podcast. It was a really intense book, a lot of great stories, but it's called The Art of Clear Thinking. And you don't have to be a fighter pilot to understand the need for clear thinking. Whether you're 
a business person and something goes wrong in a sales meeting. And I've seen some amazing things happen in sales meetings where you have to make the right call and say the right words without even thinking. Or if you're a competitor of some sort, or if you're an entrepreneur or an artist, a creative, you always have to know not just how to stop a plane from spiraling out of control, but how to take control of yourself, how to be like almost like a Jedi when it comes to just knowing instinctively what the right thing to do is. And you have to train your mind, your body, your emotions to be able to think clearly when you need to do it because you can't begin the training when things are stressful. You have to understand this art of clear thinking before you really need to think clearly. So really love the book, really love the stories. Hassard has an interesting way of explaining what's happened to him. And we all need to learn this. I was glad he came on the podcast. Again, the book's The Art of Clear Thinking. Here is Hassard Lee. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with, well, I don't know why my squad cat. I went to graduate school for computer science. Still, I can't figure all this stuff out. Yeah, it's it, all the systems trying to talk to each other. It's too difficult. I wish we were in the same location. That's always easy. But it's probably nothing compared to flying a fighter jet in a war situation. No, this is exactly what it's like. You see it in Ukraine right now. Russia is having trouble communicating. Their generals are getting picked off. It's the secure cryptos all talking to each other. That's the challenge. That's the boring stuff that Russia doesn't invest in, that we invest in with uh, exercises like Red Flag. When we first show up to a Red Flag, it's it's like this, all the different countries trying to talk to each other, and uh, it's painful. But I would think there's a difference between slow problems and fast problems, I'll call them. So like a fast problem is you're in a fighter jet and it's spinning out of control, and you have probably... 10 to 20 seconds before it's too late to make a decision, you're going to crash and you have to decide then what's going wrong. You know, it's your assess, choose, execute, your ACE uh, formulation where you have to decide to eject or to, to fix what's happening to the plane and what's going on with the plane and so on in such a fast time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just a spectrum. So it really depends on how much time you have, how much time you want to allocate towards solving the problem. But yeah, with the closure rates that we're flying at, we're going about uh, 700 miles an hour on average, and another jet's coming at you at about 700, so that's a mile every three seconds. So you don't have a lot of time to be able to to assess, choose, and execute. So it needs to be instinct. And that's why it took a, about a year for me to transition from the F-16 to the F-35. I was experienced in the F-16. My brain thought in F-16. It's kind of like a, another language. And it took about a year to finally get comfortable and start speaking F-35 as opposed to having to translate it. So it, it takes a while to be able to get uh, get caught up with it. So in your book, The Art of Clear Thinking, you give a bunch of different ways to kind of basically improve your thinking and your decision-making in, in real time in, in all of these situations, whether it's a short-term thing like flying a jet or longer-term business issues and, and so on. And you have really effective methods one thing I'm wondering is, what are the different components of a decision? So one, which you just kind of implicitly referred to is preparation. Like you were prepared on an F-16, but not necessarily an F-35. 
So preparation goes a long way. That's obviously the main thing. If you didn't know how to drive a car at all, you wouldn't be able to make any decisions in a car. Or if you didn't know anything about business, it would be very hard to make a good decision in business or investing or whatever. But what are some of the other components of a decision before we even get to clear decisions? Okay, well, big picture, it's what you described before, being able to assess, being able to look at the problem from multiple aspects. So it really depends on the amount of time that you have. So the way when I have a lot of time, because we'll be planning missions, a lot of people think when we fly, it's just this 1v1 cage match like Top Gun, you're going up and fighting the enemy's best aircraft. But it's not like that at all. It's hundreds of players all coming together to try and solve a tactical objective. And it can be multi-domain. It usually is multi-domain where you're fighting an enemy with in the air, in space, in cyber, on the ground, on the sea. Same thing with you. So you're trying to intermix all those parts together. What I found for the assessment phase, if I have a lot of time, I'll break it down into the ins, the means, the ways, and the risks. So the ins, what's the end objective? You really have to make that crystal clear. What means do you have available? What assets do you have available? What ways can you make that happen? What tactics do you have? And then uh, weighing the risks, the risks for mission success, as well as the risk to you personally and, uh, and your force. Can I ask a question on that? Yeah. Doesn't everybody do that to some extent? And then it gets, so everybody realizes, okay, I have a problem. What's the problem? I need to solve it. I need to figure out an action and then do it. And then I would say everybody sort of basically knows that, but then lots of things come into play to degrade the process then. Absolutely. Animals do that. So when a lion is hunting down a gazelle, what they're trying to do is assess, is this charge worth it? It's a lot of risk to them. Um, so that means they'll usually wait till they're within a couple dozen meters to be able to do it. So yes, humans do it, animals do it. It's really about being able to balance that from more of an analytical thinking framework. So uh, I talk about in the book where people tend to rely a lot on mathematical models, simulations. We do it in the military all the time. But if you're not looking at that fundamental assumptions of that model, then you don't want to uh, hand over blind trust to uh, to what that model is saying. It's almost like a human. It has to be able to prove itself over and over. Our weather models are pretty good. War models, especially when it's depending on a, a person, their creativity, their imagination, often they're uh, what we call the base of sand problem, where you have these elaborate, amazing models built on a few assumptions that you're not sure of. Yeah, like you you say in the book, the moment someone puts on the helmet, meaning they're about to fly a mission or on a plane, they lose 20 IQ points. Because when you're actually, you could know everything, but when you're actually in the situation, it's hard. Like what's what's the scariest situation? And I, And we'll talk about decisions in all sorts of domains, but what's the scariest point you've had in a plane? And you have lots of stories in the book, but I'm, I want to hear from you. Like what, what point were, were you in a plane where you just didn't know what to do? Yeah. So I, I would say for me, when I was first learning to fly the F-16, I uh, was doing BFM, basic fighter maneuvers, dog fighting. And we we're doing what's called high aspect BFM, where you're essentially three miles apart, you turn in, you have 1,500 miles an hour of closure, and then as soon as you pass, it's fights on, and you're trying to uh, shoot the other guy with the gun. And so I was fighting one of the most experienced guys, and he went into the vertical, and I was a little bit slow going into the vertical, and I decided to, to keep pushing it, and I shouldn't have. 
can I ask what these terms mean? So yeah. he went into the vertical. So you passed each other. So now mm -hmm. the fight's on. So what yeah. does it mean? Like he started flying up because he's going to then go shoot down at you? Yeah. So so initially we did a split S, so diving straight down. We pass each other again. And then he decided to go up straight up into the vertical, almost doing a loop. And his strategy is to then be higher than you so he could drop bombs on you. So that he could shoot me. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, he could use what we call exclusive turning room to be able to utilize gravity, radial G, to be able to point at me and shoot at me. So from the best tactical perspective, if I had enough airspeed, it would have been to match him, to prevent him from being able to do that. So I knew the tactic was correct. I executed that initial split S incorrectly, and I was a little bit slow. So just uh, five knots, seven miles an hour too slow. So now I'm going into the vertical, matching him incorrectly. And as soon as I'm getting to the top, I run out of airspeed. And so I, my airspeed goes to zero. And I start tail sliding. So even though I have af, full afterburn in the F-16, F-16 is this stripped down hot rod, 30,000 pounds of thrust coming out of the back. It's about a 30-foot flame. And I'm actually going backwards with full afterburner. And uh, you know that's, that's not where you want to be. The F-16 is not designed to fly backwards. Flight controls are old. In the F-16, it's about 90s technology. You really can't hack it. And, you know, so I knew I was uh, in a bad position. Going backwards, there's nothing you can do. You're just a piece of metal arcing through the air. The flight controls, they re rely on airspeed to be able to maneuver. And so the nose snaps down at negative 2.4 Gs. You know, we're at 1 G right now. Most people don't experience negative Gs. Maybe if you go over cresting a hill, You'll feel your stomach, uh, you know, go up a little bit. That's maybe half a G, 2.4. Everything's being pulled up to the top of the canopy. My water bottle and everything goes ricocheting through the canopy. Uh, not through the canopy, but across the canopy. I'm being pulled up with over 500 pounds of force. The straps, I can feel tightening. And I'm just, the nose is snapping down as it's trying to hunt for uh, air. And then the aircraft starts going into a spin out of control. You can hear the alarms going off. The ground's getting a lot bigger. I'm, you know, pointed, you know, hanging to my straps, looking straight at the ground. There's still no air over the flight controls. So I, I'm really just a passenger at this point. So I go through my emergency checklist for an out-of-control recovery. Can I ask a question there? Yeah. So what you're experiencing is like extreme turbulence in, in, if you were like a passenger on like a Boeing 747. And most people like flip out with just a little turbulence. How do you handle even just that kind of stress of you know, like uh, people can't function. They can't even think when there's some, a little bit of turbulence on a plane. Like what are you, what's going on in your mind at this point? Maybe, I don't think I'm weird. I think uh, with enough training, most people get to this point. Most fighter pilots are like this, but the few times that I've had issues like this, it's crystal clear. Because normally, I think we're all thinking about other random thoughts throughout the day. Even when I'm flying, you know, their background thoughts. In this case and a few other cases during my career, nothing. It's just about solving the problem. It's almost the strangest thing, but I almost, I'm not a thrill seeker, but I crave it because you're just locked in. There's nothing else in the world that you're thinking about and you're just focused on solving the problem. So there's there's no fear. Um, like you don't think at some point I could die in the next few seconds? I think it crossed my mind, but you know, I'm not trying to to be arrogant. There's no fear it was just about trying to solve the problem. And I think the fear comes later when, when you land. You're like, that was a little bit close. Um, yeah. But when you're actually in the situation, there's no fear. It's almost like being, for me, the few times it's like being in a movie 
that's really thrilling, really suspenseful. You're trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen. You have no idea what's going to happen and you're going to see how this plays out. And so you're just trying to as calmly and quickly go through the the checklist since we have a checklist for an out of control recovery jet. You're trying to go through the steps to be able to to save the plane and yourself. And if you don't get through it by for us it's 6000 feet above the ground, then you're going to punch out, eject. But you really don't want to eject in those kind of conditions. You know, you're going fast, you have a high sink rate. There's probably not a high survival rate, uh, especially if you pull out late. So, okay, so you're going straight down. Mm-hmm. And and how many feet above uh, land were you right, right now? So at this point, I was, I was probably around 7,000. So I had lost five, 6,000 feet in, in probably five to 10 seconds. So lost altitude very, very quickly. And I'm getting to that decision point, 6,000 feet. Do I eject? Do I not eject? As I was doing that uh, that tail slide, I looked down to know where the ejection handle was because as soon as I started experiencing negative G, I was lifted off the seat. It was only a couple inches, but you want to know exactly where that ejection handle is. It's between your legs if you have to eject. So I had looked down at it, and then I got back into the checklist trying to uh, trying to save the jet. And as I'm going into manual mode, so we have advanced flight computers in these aircraft, I went into manual mode so I could get a little bit more deflection on the uh, the uh, stab, the stabilizer, to be able to to rock myself out of the out of control recovery, and I'm able to to get out of the out of control part, but I still don't have enough airspeed on the jet to be able to to fly it, and so I'm getting to that ejection altitude. I decide not to eject because I'm no longer out of control. I'm just I just need more airspeed. I go into max afterburner and I'm able to to carve about 2,000 feet above the ground. So 2,000 feet, that's probably five more seconds. I probably would have impacted the ground. So that was that was a close one. And I was inexperienced at the time. So that, that taught me a lot about uh, small mistakes can have big consequences. Right. So your small mistake was basically, so here's a plane that normally you would fly at like 800 miles an hour or even up to 1,500 or, or more miles per hour. And, and you made a mistake of seven miles per hour in going vertical. Yep. And what did that do? Why did that seven miles per hour make the difference? Like, why did you lose airspeed uh, in, in the way you went vertical? Because the F-16's thrust at altitude is less than its weight. Um, so on the ground, if you take off with less than a full load of fuel, you can accelerate in the vertical. You're essentially a, a rocket ship. But at the altitudes we were flying at, about 15,000 feet, the engine makes significantly less thrust. So you need to be flying at a certain airspeed to be able to, to do a loop, essentially. And so if you're too slow, you're going to run out of airspeed before you you crest above the vertical and you're going to do a tail slide. So, you know, being five miles an hour or five knots, seven miles an hour too slow was actually kind of the worst place to be. If I was 50 knots too slow, I would have gotten, you know, halfway up through the loop, would have stalled, and then my nose would have come down. It would have been bad. It's because I was so close to being able to go over the top that I got myself into a, a pure vertical position where now I put my air, aircraft into a tail slide, which wasn't a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and then came close to to putting out of control and crashing. So let's break apart this decision. And then there's some other stories I want to break down. So clearly preparation was a key thing. Like you knew where all the controls were. You had kind of like, rules. If we go below 6,000 feet, I've got to eject. Uh, you know, you got other rules probably for when you go out of a, you know, a vertical in this way, 
you do this, 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 this. So that was a lot of preparation. What other factors, either mentally or physically or psychologically, like what other factors are com not how you make the decision, but are components of the decision? Yeah. So I think the the number one thing was not cross-checking my airspeed. So as fighter pilots, one of the things we're taught is to cross-check to be able to maintain situational awareness. So we have a lot of different instruments in the jets. Uh, F-16, lots of little gauges and dials. It's really 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s technologies all layered on top of each other. We can get into that 35 later. It's a lot different how that information is fed to the pilot. So we have a cross-check where we're analyzing different aspects of what the jet is doing. And so for me, you know, you're under a lot of G when you're uh, doing this split S maneuver, nine times the force of gravity. So my body was was about 2,000 pounds of force just crushing me into my seat, each arm 250 pounds. Um, you're trying to stay awake. If you lose enough blood, you'll pass out. And at the speeds we're flying, you'll impact the ground in about 20 seconds. And it takes about 30 seconds to wake up. So there's a lot of different things to be able to cross-check while you're doing this. And for me, so I talk about that as a failure of decision-making in my book. I failed to, to maintain my cross-check of my airspeed. So that's okay. I mean, there's different sequences for how we could how I could have still uh, recovered this jet and uh, cho chosen a better tactic. Why did you fail? My air, I dropped out the, the airspeed out of my cross-check. So I should have maintained that. I didn't, so I was too slow. Then when I made the next decision, it was compounding. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, was it because of the competitive nature of this? Like you, you were having this dogfight with this great pilot. Did that kind of psychologically, you were a little nervous maybe or anxious. So is that why you forgot to do this? Yeah, I'd say I, I was, I was the primary thing is probably because I was new. I was also, like you said, fighting with uh, this highly experienced reserve wing commander who was in charge of 2000 people. So I really wanted to do a great job. And so I would say inexperience mixed with wanting to do well is what caused this. And uh, yeah, it dropped out of my cross check. I was focused on staying awake because the whole world shrinks down to like a toilet paper roll when you're under nine times the force of gravity. And it just, it just dropped out. It was, a, it was a mistake from a young pilot. Still though, I could have saved it by uh, before deciding to, to match him in the vertical and do that loop up I could have said, you know what, I am too slow. I didn't realize that small mistakes can have big uh, outcomes like that. And so I, I should have chosen a different tactic than to meet him in the vertical. It wouldn't have been as good, but it would have been better than putting the jet out of control. So there's two compounding mistakes that, uh, that caused me to go out of control. And then uh, once you realize there was a problem, obviously the competition's over. Now it's just all about saving the plane and yourself. So that probably was instinct. And then obviously stress could degrade performance. So you were already stressed entering the plane, but now you're probably even more stressed. How do you combat that stress? And like you say, preparation and practice helps, but in the moment, is there something you do to, to combat that degradation of decision-making? That's a good point. And to your what you said earlier, we have a saying, as soon as you put on the helmet, you lose 20 IQ points. And what that means is there's an optimal band for performance. If it's too low, you're going to get bored. If it's too high, you're going to start having a lot of issues. And the Air Force has done a lot of studies on this. It really started out of World War II when they found that 
good pilots were making dumb mistakes in combat. And that's just because the stress level goes up and you start uh, not being able to have as much mental bandwidth to solve the problems at hand. Now, one of the big pushes in the last few years by the Air Force has been cognitive performance training, mental performance training, treating the human body like an athlete. And so we do a lot of things now to help alleviate stress. So back when I was going through pilot training, it was more hearsay from some of the older instructor pilots. Now it's regimented. And as soon as you show up to pilot training, you're getting some of these tools and techniques. And it's a lot of breathing techniques. It's visualization. It's self-talk. It's things that, you know, I might have uh, laughed at 10 years ago when, you know, they, they started implementing these things, but it's made a big difference. And I can see it with new pilots that I fly with. These new pilots, they're some of the top pilots in the world. When they show up, they'll do really well, and then they'll make one mistake, and then the whole train will derail. And they'll be completely different after making that mistake because they're really berating themselves. They're really trying to be perfectionist. And so I think this new cognitive performance training, at least from what I've seen, it's significantly helped pilots overcome making mistakes and being able to focus on the next decision because that's ultimately all you have control of. And like you mentioned in the book, this applies. I mean, obviously you were 17 years in the Air Force. That's where you did a lot of your hard decision-making, but you also have examples and stories in the book in, in every industry. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important. And I, I want you to try it. 
You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I've probably heard in almost every single domain of life, someone saying, man, I was such an idiot. So like, for instance, in poker, you lose a hand and you lose like $1,000, say, oh, I'm, I'm such an idiot. Like I hear that kind of negative soft talk all the time in business, in hiring, in firing, in investments, relationships. So you mentioned self-talk and you mentioned maybe this is one of the things that you would have laughed at 10 years ago, but what is self-talk and how do you do it? How do you do it in the moment? How do you avoid thinking, oh, this is bullshit while you're doing it? And how do you do it? Yeah, it's it has to do with, you know, that internal dialogue that you're having. So as fighter pilots, one of the biggest things is having confidence in what you're doing. You're flying a, a piece of metal that can get, you know, twice the speed of sound. So you have to be confident in what you're doing. Confident is different than arrogant. So you really want to be able to have that internal confidence, how you talk to yourself. First thing is being able to focus on what's going through your mind. So if you're constantly saying, you know, in your your brain, you're an idiot, what are you doing? What are you thinking? First is being able to identify that. Once you're able to identify it, for me, it, it was a process of, because I, I did that a lot, certainly, um, being able to, to switch it. So pretend like you're talking to your son or mm. pretend like you're talking to a, a, a close friend. I bet most of us would not talk to our kids or our friends how we talk to ourselves. So being able to consciously identify it and then make, here's a, here's a good key for success, make a complete sentence. So don't, you know, even if you have a quick thought that isn't like in words, make a complete sentence that's the opposite to be able to really lock that in your brain. So that's one technique that's that's helped me. And I know some people record it or write it down, the, the counter example to, you know, them berating themselves. Uh, I think there's multiple ways to do it. You prepare self-talk that's the opposite of what you think is your common self-talk. Yes. Like, what do yeah. you say to yourself uh, when you find yourself saying, oh, I'm such an idiot? It really depends on what aspect. If it's something that I'm not familiar with, then it's like, well, it's something that I'm learning, that I'm getting better at. I'm an instructor pilot, so it's the same talk I would have with a, a new pilot um, that's flying. So uh, they, they're going to make lots of mistakes. Nobody is good when they first learn how to fly. So I try to find three things they can work ultimately boil down to like because some of our debriefs last like eight hours but i boil it down to three things they can work on and three things they did well so you can always modulate it to to be able to push yourself but at the same time not break yourself what about though if you're in the middle of a decision that you have to make right now so like you see one of your students who's whenever they're about you know they, they start to spin out of control or whatever they say oh i'm such an idiot i should have done x y and z a, they should be aware that they're spiraling into negative self-talk. And B, 
they should form a complete sentence that's the opposite. What should they say to themselves? I'm going to save it for the debrief. The deep, there'll be plenty of time to be able to dig into all the mistakes that you made. So don't worry about that now. You can't fix the mistakes that you already made. You entered a new reality by making that mistake. So now your job is to look forward at the next decision, the next three decisions to be able to get yourself out of it. So uh, I think the biggest thing when you're in the moment is to realize that this is not the time to debrief. You need a set time. And that's one thing that a lot of organizations don't do is set aside time to debrief, turn it into a sterile environment and allow people to, to vent how you know the mistakes they made, how they're going to do better. You don't really want to mix it together. It's the same thing with what we're doing with the cross-check. You don't want to be multitasking and trying to do 50 things at once. You want to cross-check different aspects of it and move on. So the same thing applies to if you're making a mistake in the moment. Just think, you know, and it's difficult. It takes training to be able to say, all right, made a mistake. Now, how do I get myself out of it? But how do you restore confidence at that moment? The, oh, I'm an idiot is a lack of confidence to maybe go forward making a good decision. You know, it depends on how extreme the moment is. If you're out of control in a jet, that's not the time to worry about confidence. That's the time to execute and try to save yourself. So if you have five minutes between decisions, maybe now you can start thinking about, all right, I need to boost my confidence a little bit. But if you're doing something quick and you're trying to save your life, you don't have to worry about confidence in that moment. So save it for a set time. I would say, regardless of what you're doing, if you have that kind of negative self-talk, you can set aside time. You can put it in your calendar that I'm going to write down the things that I said negatively and I'm going to write down the adjustments to it. So I would say it's uh, it's unfortunately, it's a depends answer for that. Okay, let's take the, the poker example. Some guy just loses a poker hand. He feels he played it poorly. Yes, there'll be time for a debrief later, but he's still in the game and has to get himself back together. Or this could, again, be in a sales meeting, in the middle of a public talk, whatever. Yeah, I think a couple other techniques that we have are one of the most difficult things for a new fighter pilot is learning how to refuel. So we will fly up to a, it's like an airliner filled with fuel and then has a probe out of it. And you have to touch this other probe and connect with it so it can transfer fuel to you. Really? I didn't know that's how it happened. Yeah, you're taught your whole career to never touch another aircraft flying. And now you're purposely doing it. And you can't actually see it touching you because it's behind you. So you have to hold this position really close to a this giant aircraft because you're in a pretty small jet. F-16's wingspan's 30 feet. So uh, I don't know, a couple cars. And you're behind a... KC-135 or KC-10, essentially a uh, airliner jet. And so you're holding that position. And if you screw up, you can snap off the boom. You can crash in you know, your plane. It's filled with hundreds of thousands of pounds of fuel. So this can go really poorly very quickly. And so uh, one of the things we teach new pilots is it's simple. You know, Wiggle your fingers, wiggle your toes, and do box breathing. So wiggle your fingers and toes. It's easy to, to clinch up. And once you start clinching up, you're not going to have that fine motor acuity that you need to be able to maneuver in close proximity to another aircraft. And then that breathing is really, it's one of the few things that can calm you down because breathing is something we do consciously and subconsciously. So you, it's connected. So if you're able to slow your breathing down, now it depends, you know, some people are like five seconds, four seconds, box breathing, triangle breathing. So box breathing is four, four or five seconds in, 
hold for uh, four or five seconds, exhale for four to five seconds, and then uh, hold for four to five seconds. So it really depends on your oxygen demand. So if you're in the middle of a dogfight, you're going to need a lot more oxygen to breathe a lot faster than if you are flying straight and level. So the, the key thing is to be able to slow and deepen your breathing down. And that's when you start regaining your motor acuity. Same thing with your mental capacity. When you're all when you're stressed, your heart rates, we, we put on heart rate monitors uh, last year and sometimes our heart rates go you know, above 180 beats a minute. So it's like a flat out sprint. But when your heart rate's that high, you're not thinking in an optimal way. So you really want to find a way to relax and, and to calm yourself down. And the best way that we found is through breathing. And then you mentioned some others. There's this one part, reframing. And that's where you mentioned replace it with a counterexample, maybe from the past. So maybe they could say something like, hey, I've done this a million times. I can do it. The easy hack is just to talk to yourself like you would to your kid. That works for me. Just talk like to yourself that. like you would your kid. For me, that changed everything because you know we work with a lot of high performance people. It's probably like lawyers, doctors, things like that. And you really want to do well. We work with a lot of students that really, really want to do well. So they put a lot of pressure on themselves. They perform well, but then they end up choking where they screw up something they know they know how to do. And so that's one one thing we really want to avoid. We don't want to have good decision, good decision, good decision, terrible decision, good decision. Like we want to try to find a way to eliminate those and uh, and to make it smoother. And so for people that put a lot of pressure on themselves, especially with that negative self-talk, they will choke, they'll crumble, they'll make a, a, a terrible decision. And when you're flying, that can kill you. So by changing that self-talk, we still want people that are putting high pressure on themselves in a training environment, but to understand when you're going outside of that optimal band of performance and to be able to rein it back. One thing that worries me with this is that if you are already losing confidence and then you start saying to yourself, oh, I know how to do this. I should just do what I've been prepared for and trained for. Which side do you believe? Maybe you're bullshitting yourself. So my question is, does the self-talk actually work? Well, I think if you're just bullshitting yourself, it doesn't. So I would say, go back to the kid example. So you don't want to completely bullshit your kid. You don't want to say that they can dunk a basketball when they're five feet tall. That's that's a recipe for failure. So you want to be realistic with what you're saying. You want to find a path forward. So for me, that's going back to the ends. What what goal are we trying to to solve for? For us, it's building a wingman that's going to survive in the 2030s. So you can work backwards from that and be able to shorten that into actionable steps. And you don't want to be delusional with your self-talk. You absolutely want to be realistic with it, but you want to do it in a way that isn't berating yourself. You want to be like a coach. You want to be like a parent. You want to. Uh, you don't want to just be an evaluator. So clearly, preparation is one aspect of a decision. Confidence is another aspect. You know, it seems like uh, one thing you go heavily into, and this is what really reminds me of the poker analogy: is you try to figure out what's the expected value of all your possible decisions. So understanding the basics of not quite statistics, but just how statistics and probabilities work. Uh, you don't need to know the exact math of real life situations because that's hard to know. But understanding the concept of expected value seems very important part of the decision making. Yeah, I think expected value is a great way at looking 
at decisions. So what is the upside multiplied by the probability of that happening minus the downside minus the probability of that happening? That's a good way to walk a balance between a statistical, you know, complex computer model and just our gut intuition. Because we're constantly doing that, you know, going back to the line example, we're constantly looking at what's the expected value of it. But a lot of times, especially, I think, as humans, we we try to push ourselves and make things more complicated than they should be. We bring in other factors. I think it all just boils down to what's the expected value. A lot of people get hung up with uncertainty. There's going to be uncertainty in just about every decision that you're going to make. So when I am looking at a decision, especially if, uh, if there's not a lot of time, I'm trying to eliminate as many options as possible. Once you get down to three, four options, you know, you might the uncertainty might be too high to be able to find the best one. So in that case, I think it's usually best to be able to just pick one of those decisions and move on. One of the concepts we talk about is no decision is a decision, and it's usually the the worst one to make. If you're constantly just mulling over and not getting new information, then just make a decision. You'll probably set what I go into is the uh, the law of diminishing return for understanding a problem. If you're looking at it for the first couple minutes, you know, we're talking about a quick decision, the first couple minutes, you'll be able to take in most of the information. But if, you know, three days down the road or three years down the road, depending on some decisions, at some point, you're going to reach the law of diminishing return. It's not worth your time anymore. Make the decision, reset the diminishing curve, and then uh, try to make another decision to correct what's going on. So that's, I think, a good way of looking at decisions. So you you mentioned working with lawyers. Like, what's, what's an example where a lawyer is in the courtroom feels it's not quite going his way, maybe sensing the the jury isn't with him or the people he has on the stand, it's not getting the reaction he would like. How does he calculate expected value in, in that situation? And what, what alternatives might that lawyer have? Well, I'm certainly not a lawyer, so I probably am not the expert to speak on that, but I think it can apply to really any decision. So you're going to be able to, with expected value, let's talk about just driving across town. So if we're trying to drive from here to a set location, there's a million ways to do that. 99% of those are going to be terrible ways to to drive across town. So the expected value, first, you have to define what that is to you. So is it speed? Is it scenery? Is it the shortest distance? And then you can start finding the expected value in terms of what's the estimated time? What's the chance of running into traffic? So I think looking in terms of expected value, and it doesn't have to be accurate. So that's where a lot of people get hung up with is trying to find a stat, uh, statistic for what's the probability of encountering traffic. So I think that's when you really have to rely on your intuition. So really the book is about a focus on experts and on preparation and becoming an expert in a field and the value of that as opposed to just handing your brain off to a committee or a computer model. So as an expert, if you've been in this field for a long time, you're going to have a gut answer to what's the probability of something specific happening. I think people should go with that. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. 
From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So like, let's say one of your examples where you're, you're flying in, I think it was Afghanistan, it's getting dark. You have to make a decision about, you know, how much fuel you have to get back or what height you fly to not, you know, lose fuel. And you had a bunch of things going on. Maybe describe that story and the various decisions you had to make. Yeah. So I think that story that you're talking about is when my wingman and I were coming back from a strike mission in Helmand, Afghanistan. And... We were coming back. We were low on fuel. Now, usually we always have backup airfields that we can land at. Tonight, though, one of the airfields, the runways was closed. Our alternate airfield, Kabul, was closed for maintenance. We were coming back in the middle of the night, and we were carrying a lot of ordnance on the jet. Now, some of the ordnance that we had were the latest weapons in the Air Force inventory, so we weren't allowed to drop them, to just dump them in the dirt. Now, when the F-16 is coming back, it has really small wings, really small brakes. You can easily light those brakes on fire. So we have to get to a certain weight to be able to land, especially since that night we had to land on a short, really short runway. So for us, that meant there's going to be a five-minute gap where we we're going to be low on fuel. We we're going to use our afterburner, burn down all our fuel so that we are light as possible, and land. That would mean for five minutes, we would not have an alternate airfield. We would have to land at that airfield. Now, as uh, fate would have it, as soon as we were about to land, we, were, we had burned off our fuel, the base came under attack. So there was mortar fire into the base. And we had a mortar anti-defense system called CRAM to try and shoot down those mortars. Middle night, coming back, those mortar, those uh, machine guns, they each have 20 millimeter rounds in them, started opening up fire, pointed at our jets, and you could see them exploding. So it was like being in the middle of a fireworks show. Like the afterburner, get above this whole thing. And now we're, you know, critically low on fuel. There's not a lot of options. And so we're trying to assess the value of what we should do. It really came down to the airfield was hit. The runway was hit. Should we land on it? Should we eject? Should we try to find another alternate solution? First thing was finding a baseline decision that would be a, a decent jumping off point before trying to find something more elaborate. So first you come up with like, you come up with the plan B actually before the plan A. Yeah. Like worst case, I'm going to do this, but let's find a better solution. Correct. Yeah. You want to work from big picture to, to small. So the first thing is let's find something that's reasonable that's going to work. And then we can start going down rabbit trails of trying to find something that's that's an excellent solution. So what's what's a good enough solution to get me out of this problem? Because I only have a few minutes left. For us, that was 15 minutes before we were going to run out of fuel. So we talked about the decision putting the jet out of control. That's a you know bang bang right away decision versus this fifteen minutes, a little bit more time to to really parse through the information and try to find a solution. So first decision: Are we going to have to eject or should we land on the airfield? 
And so I go through kind of a, a quick math example in my head of, all right, so the average mortar shell probably puts about a one-foot hole in the runway. They had said it was hit by one or two mortar shells. All right, uh, between my three wheels, I'm using up about three or four feet of the uh, the runway as I'm landing on the runway. So there's really only a uh, one in 20 chance, 5% chance of actually hitting the crater that the mortar shell left. Now, if we did that, there's probably about a 50-50 chance that we're going to cartwheel the jet. If we cartwheel the jet, we're probably going to die. So, you know, at this point, it's not a terrible solution. So even though the runway has been hit, it sounds bad. People are panicking. There's really only a 5% chance that something bad is going to happen. You know, as soon as I calculated that, I felt a lot calmer. It's a lot better than the alternative, ejecting out of the aircraft. That's, we have a great seat in the F-16, about a 5% uh, failure rate, so about a 95% chance of being able to successfully eject, but you're losing the jet and you're ejecting in the hostile countryside. So with similar uh, similar probabilities, it's much better to go with the the landing on the runway. At least there's medical services there. So that's how I made that initial quick decision. And then now that I had that good one, I gave myself 10 minutes. We had 15 minutes before we ran out of fuel, 10 minutes now to be able to to find a better solution. And that involved my wingman talking to Kabul, seeing if we could land there. We weren't able to do that. Uh, me going up on SATCOM, trying to find if there's a tanker in the country that had flown in for the next vol. So we always had two F-16s airborne. This was 2017. We always had two F-16s airborne. We'd fly in tankers from other countries. I was able to find another tanker about uh, 75 miles away which put us right on the edge of being able to refuel. And so I go into the story of being able to compare that expected value to landing on the airfield. And we chose to refuel from the tanker. Fortunately, we were able to refuel, get a full load of gas, and then they were able to patch the runway. We were able to land. But the framework really helped me to be able to, to calm down, to understand this wasn't a, a life and death decision. Even though the runway had been hit, people were panicking. There's still... 95% chance, that's still pretty good of, of making it out. So no need to panic. Let's let's go through the steps to be able to put this bird on the ground. And were you confident? You said you were right at the, the brink of losing, running out of fuel by the time you would hit the refueler. Were you that close to the brink or did you know you had like maybe one minute leeway or two minutes leeway? Yeah, well, that that is interesting as well because we could have flown to the tanker and bet the farm on that. And if we weren't able to refuel, which... There are a lot of instances where you're not able to refuel from the tanker. We would have been out of luck, had to eject. So what we decided to do is to fly a max endurance profile, so pretty slow, keep ourselves within range of Bagram. So if we weren't, Bagram was the base that we were landing at. If we weren't able to refuel by flying slow and letting the tanker come to us at maximum speed, we could have split off and landed. Now, I had given myself 10 minutes to, with a five-minute buffer to land we chose to go all the way to the last minute with this. So we flew max endurance, flew at the tanker. It was able to fly at us. We were able to run an intercept on it, arrive right behind it. We had to do a really what's called a hot intercept. Usually we don't like to do that. We like to be a little bit further aft, but we didn't have the fuel to be able to run a colder intercept and then slowly ease onto the tanker. We had to do a really hot one uh, turning right onto its tail. So if we were not able to refuel on the tanker, we would have had barely enough fuel to be able to land. So it was really a free chance to uh, refuel from the tanker. 
The only downside is we would have only had one chance to land if we had not been able to refuel. Typically, you like a chance to do a go around if you have to. So, but it, it's it's interesting though. So like you found your plan B, the base plan. And in fact, you had two base plans. One was to eject, one was to, you know, land on the runway. But you found a plan you could do while still keeping maybe 50 to 60% of the old plan still active in case the better plan didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it like a Venn diagram. Like you really don't want to jump into a plan where you have to completely sacrifice the first, especially that baseline plan. For me, always finding an out, as we call it, flying fighters. Find that out. What am I going to do as a last resort? And then you can stack on top more elaborate, more creative, more complex solutions. But at the end of the day, you always want to have that out where if all those things fail, because you're starting to add in complexity. I was having a talk with the tanker crew. They're having issues with their radios. They, you know, I had to be pretty clear on what they were doing. They really, uh, you know, imagine them. They're just flying into the country and then they have this fighter pilot call them up saying, you have to fly this direction right now. Fortunately, they they were fantastic and they they did exactly what I said. But I could have easily seen them saying, you know, what's going on? Why should we do that? They had to fly into uh, Kabul's airspace with Bagram. So they did a lot of coordination on their end. So it wasn't a, a super high chance. It wasn't 100% that they were going to be able to execute what I wanted them to do. So it was great to be able to, in this case, have that baseline plan and then be able to find a better one that still maintained that baseline one. Right, because your overall expected value improved a lot, even if that was only a 50-50, but your initial plans you know, had a 5% chance of total failure, whereas your overall expected value increased when there's no chance of failure if the 50% chance that you hit the refueler works. Yeah, absolutely. And so it was creativity that was able to solve that. So we found that creative solution that was able to increase the expected value because the typical ones would have been land or eject. So we we found that one and then we were able to slightly decrease it in that we would have only had one time to one chance at landing instead of two or three chances. So it's slightly lowered, but then it raised considerably because if we were able to refuel, which is a pretty high chance we were able to refuel, then we wouldn't have any problem. We could stay airborne for for the next 12 hours if we had to while they were patching the runway, get enough fuel to land at a different airfield. So by finding a creative solution, we were able to raise it much higher. You mentioned power laws quite a bit in the book. Like, What's the relationship between power laws and, and decision-making? So I think power laws really go into the assessment phase. There are a few variables to look at for most, most professions that have a outsized impact on what you're trying to do. So it goes down to, for the assess phase, what's the ends, what, what goal are you trying to achieve? And then those that cross-check, what you're looking at, for me, has to do with, uh, with power laws. So power laws, you know, we're evolved to think linearly. If you walk 30 steps, you're 30 steps away. But that's not how most things in the world operate, especially when you're starting to leverage a lot of things, leverage technology. When I'm flying a jet, I can travel 100 times faster than I can by foot. I can carry 100 times more. I can see out to the horizons. I'm thousands of times more, more capable than I could be on my own. Same thing for all of us. The average American uses 12,000 watts of electricity despite only burning 90 watts themselves. So all of that is the technology that they're leveraging to make their decisions uh, have an outsized impact. So once you start applying a lot of leverage, uh, you start seeing that 
most things in life are not linear. They adhere to one of three power laws, the law of diminishing return, exponential uh, growth, or long-tail power law. So you really want to find the variables that are those affect. And so, for instance, when we have to eject, a lot of different things in the checklist for us to do to be able to eject safely. The number one thing is just slowing down. So speed, the force increases exponentially with speed. So if you are going Mach 1.6, about 1,000 miles an hour, it's 300 times the force of sticking your hand outside of the car going highway speed. So it'll just shred your body. Every bone in your body will break. It's not going to be a good day. So simply slowing down, despite a lot of things in the checklist, just slowing down is the number one thing for survival. So I try to find those few variables that adhere to a, a strong power law and optimize for that. Actually, I want to go over the example. One of the first stories in the book was the French airline. You know, they didn't find the black box for several months, so nobody knew why. This plane just disappeared. And finally, though, they kind of found out what happened and what poor decisions were made. Do you mind going through that example? Because it was very interesting. Yeah, Air France Flight 447 takes off from uh, Brazil, bound for France, and it ends up disappearing over the Atlantic. Nobody knows what happened. Uh, they launched search and rescue vehicles. They even launch, uh, France launches a nuclear submarine to try and find it. And they they find it several years later in, I believe it was 14,000 feet of water. So it's super deep. Nobody knows what's happened. It's several years later. And they're able to find the black boxes, pull them up. They send them to Paris under uh, security. And what they find in those black boxes was astonishing. Like it was everybody's worst fear as a pilot. And so what they found was the airplane was flying straight and level, no issues. It was going through the intertropical convergence zone. So it's that's a fancy word for just where the the north hemisphere, the weather meets the southern hemisphere. So it forms a lot of thunderstorms. Um, there were 11 other aircraft that had flown through those thunderstorms in the previous hour, had no issues. Now Air France 447 ends up flying through one of those thunderstorms. And it, the uh, the hail in the thunderstorm blocks all three pitot tubes simultaneously. You know, not the best place to be as a pilot, but the airplane was still flying. No issues. Air still going over the wings at 35,000 feet. Everything's fine. If they had done nothing, they would have flown for another five minutes. The hot air would have melted the blockages in the pitot tubes. They would have been fine. Now, what happens, though, is that it blocks all three PO2s simultaneously. It's the middle of the night. They have a really inexperienced co-pilot that's uh, in charge of the plane since the captain went to sleep. And it, it shuts off the autopilot. Autopilot isn't designed for no airspeed indication. So the autopilot says, I don't know what's going on. You have full control of the aircraft, which we can talk to later if you want, because that's a big issue with automation, especially in the aviation world. So I don't know what to do. It's a thunderstorm. Now you got it, pilot, who's just been uh, kind of kicking back. He does not assess. So he jumps right into action, which is an instinct that a lot of people have. When you're just assessing a problem, you don't feel like you're making progress on it. He pulls back on the stick, 35,000 feet. They're at the maximum altitude, really heavy jet, ready to cross the Atlantic. And they start a climb at 7,000 feet a minute, blistering fast climb for uh, for an aircraft that it that's operating at its max altitude. How did he make that decision? Because why he, did he think, so I guess he thought flying over the weather would would solve the problem. And, and did he not know that these 
tubes were, were blocked or what didn't he know? He didn't know. All he knew was that they now no longer had an airspeed. So mm -hmm. the way it was blocked, it's been said that it, potentially there's uh, a high airspeed indication. So he thought he was flying, uh, he thought he was flying fast. But that's not the first instrument you need to cross-check. You need to cross-check your attitude indicator, so where the jet is pointed. So just minutes prior, he had been talking to the other co-pilot that uh, they could not climb over the thunderstorm. So he knew that they were at their max altitude. Now, when this actually happened, he's a young pilot. He was in his 30s. He was known as the company baby. He just acted. And so he pulled back on the stick, probably because the airspeed indicator said they're going fast, even though that's not the first instrument you should look at when uh, something like this happens. Pulled back. This uh, large Airbus starts uh, going, uh, kind of like my jet, into the vertical. It ends up stalling, and he continues to hold back on the stick. So at this point, yeah, they're stalling. They're getting uh, you know, a lot of uh, alarms going on in the cockpit. They could easily solve it. They're at about 38,000 feet, 40,000 feet plenty of airspeed. All you have to do is relax the stick. So don't even touch anything. The jet will start flying itself. They make they make fighter aircraft really unstable. They make airliner jets very, very stable. They fly themselves. He doesn't do that. He continues holding back on the stick the whole time. His co-pilot is more experienced than him trying to figure out what's going on. He doesn't know because the Airbus doesn't have the yoke like some of the older aircraft. They both have their own stick. So he doesn't know that this guy is pulling back on the stick the whole time. And he continues to stall the aircraft for five minutes. The captain even comes in from sleeping and you know says, what, what are you guys doing? And they don't know what's going on. The, the guy who's holding back the stick is, you know, his, he's just panicking. He doesn't know what's going on. And the other guys who are experienced, including the captain, they don't know that he's holding back on the stick. And so for five minutes straight, this co-pilot holds back on the stick and they end up crashing into the ground. 51G impact. Everybody dies because he didn't assess the problem. It would have been a, it would have been such an easy problem. In fact, I, those uh, pitot tubes had been blocked about a dozen times in the past year. So A, poor job uh, in the design of the pitot tube. But B, it had been blocked a dozen times in the previous year. No other crew had an issue. This guy just ended up panicking and pulling back on the stick for five minutes, which is an eternity when, as a pilot. So clearly he made mistakes because he was panicking. He probably wasn't, wasn't breathing to calm down. He wasn't getting back to his training and his checklist and so on. But the captain was in there. What, was the, what were the mistakes the captain made? A mistake the captain made was as they were going into urgent zone, he decided to take his break. So that's a time as, as a captain... I'm not an airline pilot, but I'm a flight lead, so sometimes I'll be leading dozens of other aircraft. When you're going into a high-threat area, you want to be on the tip of the spear. You want to be making the difficult decisions. He decided to take his break. Now, it's probably standard procedure based on time for him to do that. But once he did, he relinquished all his decision-making ability to the co-pilot. It's surprising during the stall that he was actually able to make it back to the cockpit. Now, between the other co-pilot and the captain, they really started um, in a hole with this because they had no idea that the original co-pilot, the young one, was pulling back on the stick. Are they supposed to ask or should they have thought to ask? What are you doing? We're stalling. Is there anything you're doing that's different? No, because as soon as it happened, the young one said, my aircraft. So my aircraft means I'm the only one touching it. This is my aircraft. 
everybody else is helping me. So he established that he's in charge. Captain's not there. Captain's asleep at this time. The other guy, he's has is more of an executive in the airline, so he only flies occasionally. And uh, as soon as he says my aircraft, it's uh, the young guy's aircraft, and everybody is there to support him. So the more experienced co-pilot who is relegated to a secondary role, his job now was to go heads down and try to activate the the standby airspeed and, and things like that. So he comes really close several times throughout this mishap to understanding what's going on. He doesn't quite get there. And as soon as he starts messing with the avionics, he loses all situational awareness of what's going on until he says, he at, at one point says, my aircraft. So he takes control of the aircraft and starts solving the problem. And uh, as a, a cardinal sin of a pilot, the young guy again pulls back on the stick without letting anybody know. So that's the, you know, everything else is pretty forgivable, but him pulling back on the stick, even though that other co-pilot had said my aircraft, that's kind of the unforgivable part. So they were all starting behind the power curve because they had no idea what this young guy was doing. I see. And he was pulling behind the stick because he thought he was crashing. So he felt like he needed to raise the height of the airplane. At one point he says, I think we're traveling at incredible speed. So he just had, he was out to lunch. He had no idea what was going on, which, which happens, you know, you, you know, I don't want to blame the, uh, the young co-pilot. He's inexperienced. There's some part of his training that wasn't done properly. So I, I talk about, you know, one of, one of my favorite sayings is that anytime a pilot crashes, a little bit of all of us goes with them because we all had a chance to influence that decision, decision that they made. So there is some point in his training that he didn't get. So he made a mistake and then he, he, everybody else was behind the power curve because of it. Again, like how could they have, you, you mentioned they had to first check which direction they're going. How would that have helped figure out the speed? Because of the physics of the aircraft. So as an airliner, if the engines are operating properly, it's the attitude of the jet. So you want to make sure you're not going up, not going down, not rolling left, not rolling right. So that's the, the primary instrument that you look at as a pilot, especially when you're in what are called IFR instrument flying conditions if you're in a cloud. So that's the number one thing because a jet isn't just going to rapidly drop altitude if it's flying straight and level. So he should have looked at his attitude indicator, recognized that they were going straight and level. There's no climb, no descent, no turning. Everything's going to be fine. Even if your airspeed says you're going 1,000 miles an hour, those things have errors. They make mistakes. So disregard that in your cross check. There are secondary instruments. There's uh, your VVI, your uh, vertical velocity indicator, if that's at zero and your attitude is showing zero, that means you're flying straight and level. You're having an instrument malfunction. So that's one thing that we train in, in pilot training. You first want to analyze the situation and then take the proper action. So he did not analyze the situation, immediately jumped into pulling back on the stick, pulling the power back, doing all kinds of different things and made it significantly worse. Like I said, if they had done absolutely nothing, they would have flown you know, straight and level, it would have melted. They would have been just fine, like those dozen other airliners that encountered a similar situation in the previous year. Well, what's what's interesting is throughout the book, you give a variety of frameworks to help make decisions in, in complicated situations. But also you mentioned, okay, you were trained on F-16. So when you switched to F-35s, there was some difficulties. You, you didn't speak F-35 at first. You had to get used to that. But but some methods of decision-making are so broad, it could help you whether you're flying a jet or driving a car or 
dealing with a relationship situation or or whatever. So when you switch to a new domain, let's say you were a passenger on that plane and you knew exactly what was going on. Let's say you go to the cockpit and you say, I can solve this. Would you be able to solve it even though you had never flown that type of plane before? If I was like the captain where I showed up in the middle of this thing? Yeah. Yeah, I think I would have if if the guy wasn't holding back on the stick. Since he was holding up back the the stick back, that makes things significantly more difficult because now you think the stick isn't being actuated and you're looking at all the controls, you're thinking, I don't know, is, is this thing in a in a flat spin? What what's going on? So if it were just me stumbling on this situation, I think I'd be able to solve it. Let's say all the pilots had passed out. And so you're Yeah. Easy. And that's not because it's a different domain. That's actually because that's the domain that I that we thrive in as fighter pilots. So most commercial pilots, as soon as they get to 400, 1,000 feet, they flip on autopilot. They don't turn it off for the rest of the, the trip until they're ready to land. And in some cases, it'll land on its own. So I know the airliners, they have a lot of issues with the stick and rudder skills atrophying. Not the case as, as fighter pilots. We're still making a lot, of, a lot of decisions out there, yanking, banking, pulling Gs. So this was a, from a fighter pilot perspective, this is our domain. This was a, a, a super easy problem to solve. All they had to do was relax back pressure, get some more airspeed on the jet. It's exactly like my out of control situation when I had prevented the aircraft from going out of control. Now I need to get more airflow over the wings so that I can pull up. And uh, the other pilots, they were pretty close to being able to solve that. In fact, they realized at the last minute, I think it was about 5,000 feet above the ground that he had been holding the stick back the whole time. And they said, no, 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 push it forward. And he was still out to lunch with uh, his understanding of what was going on. He pulled back on the stick and that was their last, last opportunity to be able to recover the jet. But uh, yeah, absolutely. If, if you throw really any fighter pilot or even most pilots in that situation, especially if they have a lot of time with smaller aircraft that aren't on autopilot the whole time, it, that's kind of the first thing you learn is if you're stalling, to push forward, get some airspeed back on the jet, and then recover. So I'm wondering how much you can take from these skills of this decision-making, almost like these meta skills, and apply them to domains you're not prepared for. So like, let's say, I don't know, let's say you were having a problem with your kids. Your kids are teenagers and they're doing teenage things you don't approve of. And you have to make a decision about what to do. How, what percentage of your ability to make a decision do you think you lose in a different domain? That's a good question. I would say there's certainly aspects that carry over. The number one skill to making good decisions is preparation. So I think if you take somebody who's not a parent and throw them in with some teenagers, they're going to struggle despite what decision-making framework that they have. But I think it can make everybody a little bit better. And I think as as parents, it's easy to to lose your cool and to be able to to make a rash decision. So I think being able to slow down, break up the decision-making cycle so that you're not just reacting, so that you're going on the offense and you're assessing what's going on, you're breaking down, hey, what's what's my goal? Is my goal for compliance or am I trying to make a child that is able to thrive on their own in their 20s? I think that's a uh, uh, important question to ask because it's going to go through different solutions. So assess what's your end goal. And I think for me, that's a, a kid that's able to survive on their own and make good decisions on their own. Break down what am I choosing? What decision am I choosing? There's multiple tools at your disposal. And then being able to execute on it, 
being able to control, you know, how you're thinking kids can, it's easy for them to make their parents frustrated. So being able to control yourself. And then as parents, you make a lot of mistakes. So being able to not berate yourself, to have confidence as a parent, to continue to make decisions, because just like flying as a parent, you're making thousands of decisions. You're going to make mistakes. Nobody's ever been a perfect parent throughout their kids' lives. So you're going to make mistakes. So you have to be able to find a way to recover. Hey, you mentioned earlier automation. And on the one hand, automation is, I would imagine this is true in the airline industry. It's true in almost every industry um, or in the air pilot industry. It very much increases productivity. You could probably train a lot more airline pilots knowing that 95% of the most plane flights are on autopilot. So that gives you more pilots to choose from when you're hiring people. So on the one hand, automation is this great thing. But like you said, if you automate too much, then some skills might atrophy. And I'm wondering where the line is because you know now we have these amazingly fast changes in, in AI happening right now that's going to make a lot of jobs so much productive that it might even eliminate some jobs. But what I'm saying is like in general, automation is a really great thing. It increases the productivity of society. Like if robots were stacking all the shelves, it would make stacking shelves more productive. If cars drove you to work every day, if auto driving cars uh, drove you to work every day, you could be more productive in the car. So it's a great thing. So when does it become a problem? So I think the number one thing is having a graceful degradation. That's one thing that uh, I think a lot of people don't pay enough attention to. They make this elaborate system for flying or for, for driving cars. And then when the computer, when the AI runs in, into an issue that they can't solve, they hand it back to the the pilot and or the person, and that's the the worst time to do it. So it should have a a way to gracefully degrade to get the pilot back in the loop. I live in Phoenix. It's the wild west out here in terms of autonomous cars. We have Waymo's driving around completely autonomous. Uber uh, had their fleet out here driving around till they hit somebody and killed them, and then they got kicked out. I also drive a, a Tesla and 99% of the time, the autopilot works well. 1% of the time, it tries to kill you. Same thing with flying. So finding a way for people to be in the loop to maintain their situational awareness, it's really easy to lose that situational awareness and then to get this terrible situation thrown at you. Somewhat like the, the Air France 447 flying through the thunderstorm and then all of a sudden, bells and alarms are going off. It's your jet. Autopilot's disappeared. Now, what are you going to do? So finding a way to gracefully degrade what's going on. We're in a unique time, I think, in, in history where pilots, people, they have a lot that AI does not offer. People think that they're going to be replaced by AI soon, maybe in certain fields, but not in general, in my opinion. I think that humans have a ability to think critically, to be able to link different frameworks and different types of understanding together and that's going to be relevant for a long time. So I think man plus machine beats either one for the next, call it 50, 100 years. Because yeah. a lot of people often ask, fighter pilots are going to be replaced in the next 10 years, right? And the answer is absolutely not. I agree with that. Although let me ask about the fighter pilot situation specifically. If I see a target on the military equivalent of Google satellite that's like real-time you know, tracking and everything, can I just hit a button and some guided missile goes straight to that you know, target? Why do I need a plane to do it? So it's, like I said earlier on, it's not just this 1v1 cage match. It's hundreds of assets all going into a country. The enemy is specifically trying to target your decision-making. 
So that's a unique thing. You have really clever enemies out there that are trying to find the weakness in what you're doing. So it's not just missiles out there. It's uh, electronic warfare. They're trying to jam your radars. You're trying to jam them. There's cyber that's trying to shut you down. There's space assets. They're trying to degrade your ability to assess the problem. And you're trying to do the same thing with them. And you're trying to force them to make what we call a lethal choice. So force them kind of back to the uh, the landing example, force them into a choice where they don't have a backup option. So they choose option A, that cuts off their ability to do option B. And then you're a lot, it's a lot easier to be able to counter those tactics. So when it comes to warfare, I, I guess a, an example would be like, all right, Teslas can drive decently on the highway across the city. Now, what if I gave you a million dollars to prevent that Tesla from driving across the city. I bet you'd come up with all kinds of creative solutions, painting the lines into a telephone poles, trying to hack the software, trying to shine laser beams into the cameras. That's what the enemy's doing. They're just sitting around thinking about ways to mess with your ability to assess the problem and make a good decision. So warfare, that's an area that we're going to rely a lot on AI, but it's not going to replace humans, at least as fighter pilots, what it's probably going to look like is we're going out there with some autonomous wingmen. So why did you join the Air Force? I wanted to fly. So I, since I was five years old, I went to an air show. I, I saw the Thunderbirds flying. I was able to sit in the cockpit. This was back in the 80s and uh, probably can't do that now, but was able to sit in a cockpit, see these these machines there they're they're really they're just incredible they're just technology wrapped around you f-35 has 40 plus thousand pounds of thrust you're uh, on the end of a roller coaster you control the roller coaster wherever you're going on the battlefield you have a tremendous ability to impact what's going on so afghanistan we flew a lot of close air support missions we're able to save a lot of u.s service members and and uh, afghan members as well so you're able to make a big difference on the battlefield. And it's it's an experience that doesn't really exist. You're uh, you're on the end of this roller coaster where you can do pretty much whatever you want. You can fly supersonic. You can fly 50,000 feet and see the curvature of the earth. It's just an incredible experience. And then also be able to couple that with being able to save service members out there. It's a great feeling. Have you thought about um, joining one of these space companies and flying into space? You know, I think... I think we're so. I was just with a astronaut, um, Terry Verts. He was a, a space shuttle pilot, and he said he was at the perfect time as an astronaut. He wouldn't really want to go back because he got a chance to fly the space shuttle, and it was a manual experience. He was flying it back after he gets back from space. It hands it over to the pilot, and he had a chance to fly it. Now, you really don't get a chance to fly anything. It you know the the SpaceX takes you up. You don't really do anything. It docks. So it's almost like an elevator now. I think I have a chance right now to fly fighters at the pinnacle of flying. The technology is amazing. It does incredible things. You know, I think in in a few generations, we probably will end up going autonomous, but that's way down the road. So I, I think I'm at the perfect time to be a fighter pilot. I think space has already become a little bit too autonomous. That being said, I'd love to hop on a ride. Now, this is a dumb question, but... How come a fighter jet can't go into space? The engine and how it's um, how the flight controls work. So you need wind resistance over the flight controls to be able to maneuver. And the air gets extremely thin at altitude. 
in the in the sixties, seventies, they had the X uh, series jets trying to go up, and they had little thrusters on them. So that was actually a a concept with the X fifteen. They were going to fly Mach seven and eventually be able to get into space. I uh, I think uh, that was um, they found out that rockets were a better way of doing that, especially like with the space shuttle, if you wanted to maximize the reusability, although they had a bunch of issues with that. But for just typical fighter aircraft, if you're not making something elaborate, because maybe they will be able to make hypersonic rocket uh, aircraft that are able to get into orbit. But for just typical aircraft, uh, the engines can't go above, you know, maybe 75,000 feet. They'll start to stall out because there's not enough oxygen. Okay, but that's like like 13, you only need to go like, three or four miles higher than that and you're in space and so can't you throw in okay we're switching into space mode so now there's thrusters on on all sides of the plane that could maneuver that way you could from a physics standpoint these aircraft definitely aren't designed for that i think the you know it depends on who you're talking to i know blue origin tried to kind of lower it for their rocket i think it's 60 miles for space is ah, that okay so it's three hundred thousand feet so they were getting up to that altitude or pretty close to it with like the X-15 and some of those aircraft. So I guess you could count kind of those as as rocket ships. But for the kind of typical fighter aircraft, I mean, you have to think of it from an engineering perspective. What are they trying to do? They're trying to design a, a stealth fighter that has great sensors to be able to go into combat into something like Ukraine, you know, that kind of conflict right now and be able to be as capable as possible. But hypersonics is the future of the Air Force investing heavily into it. So I think you're going to see a lot more aircraft kind of like the 60s start to manifest. And and based on your your knowledge and context and everything, what do you think is happening in Ukraine right now? Like you, you see, we see all this like media and everybody's got their press points, but what do you think is actually happening? I think that Ukraine is decimating the Russian military. So I'm speaking about this from a from a civilian standpoint with open source uh, information, but just look at how they're able to hold off Russia, you know, granted with Western support. But I mean, it's amazing to watch. And just like we're having a little bit of issues getting connected, that's the fundamentals of warfare. It's not the sexy hypersonics. Russia has done a, a good job of fooling everybody for the last 20 years, just investing in the a few stealth fighters. We have the thousandth F-35 that just off, rolled off the line, um, as opposed to other countries just have science experiments when it comes to modern fighters. They just have a few of them. So Russia's done a good job of building a few one-off things to be able to kind of trick the media into uh, going viral with information that that they have a great military, but they have not invested in the basics like logistics, like uh, command and control, like communication. And that's why you see, you know, at the start of the war, the generals getting picked off because they were just using non-secure radios so it's pretty uh, eye-watering to see the Ukrainians, how creative they are, you know, using tractors to drag the tanks off the battlefield and then uh, using man-portable uh, missiles to uh, shoot down the, the Russian aircraft. So I think it's, it's amazing what they're doing. I think it's not a big surprise because Russia was kind of a paper tiger and they had a uh, not a great military, even though they had a super, you know, they were a superpower. A lot of that equipment just sat out for a decade without maintenance. So it's uh, it's great to see. And um, hopefully Ukraine can keep it up. I wonder how Russia backs out of this and saves space. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of a, a balancing point for the West. You don't want to push too hard. You don't want to 
have their forces go into the country and ignite a world war or to yeah. get somebody to use a, a, a nuclear weapon, but you want to make sure that Ukraine is is funded and that they're able to continue to uh, bring the fight to Russia. Well, uh, Hassard Lee, author of The Art of Clear Thinking, A Stealth Fighter Pilot's Timeless Rules for Making Tough Decisions. This is a great book. Like I, I got a uh, an advanced copy of the book and I started reading it and you're a really good storyteller. Whenever someone comes to me like, hey, how do I write a book? I always say, forget all of your ideas first and just think of stories and then put the ideas in there. Like think of your best stories first and then wrap them around the ideas so that the ideas are in there. And you do that. I was riveted like right from the beginning with this book, like such such great stories about a topic I knew nothing about, which was uh, all your stories on the fighter jets and stuff. And they And you really then wrap them around these different concepts about decision-making and clear thinking and a very useful book. So thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. And uh, so my point is afterwards, after I'd already read the book, then the publicist reached out to me, the publisher for the publishing company, I guess, reached out and said, hey, do you want to have this person on your podcast? And I said, absolutely. I just read the book. So rarely do I read the book before I, uh, if there's no podcast scheduled, but this time I did. It's a very good book. That's fantastic. I'm I'm really glad you liked it. I I dedicated uh, many years to writing that book. It's probably six years into the making. Wow. Uh, I wrote 500 days in a row. Didn't take a single day off. It was it was only after the second Thanksgiving that my wife was like, "Next on Christmas, you're going to take that day off, right?" You know, it was it was interesting going from being a fighter pilot to being a writer. Um, you get a lot, you know, comfortable just sitting at a desk writing. So I'd write for four hours every morning. So it was definitely something that I poured my heart and soul into. The trick they say, you've written so many books. So, you know, I'm sure it just comes out gold for you. But the trick for newbie writers, they say, is just just put something on the paper. Make a crappy first draft. And so that's what I did. But then I was left with a crappy first draft. So I, I went through nine nine revisions on it to try and hone it hone it down and make it make it something great. I really like uh, authors like Malcolm Gladwell and Atul Gwande who yeah. who have these interwoven stories. And I think that helps people learn a lot better. I didn't want a white paper. I wanted to to make it story first. And so I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and it didn't get bogged down by the science or this study or that study. You had like real stories, which I think is really valuable because then people see that, oh, this works in practice. So well, once again, The Art of Clear Thinking by Hassard Lee. Thanks so much for sharing some of those stories on the podcast. And look, let us know when you write the next book or anytime you want to come back on, let us know. Will do. Thanks, James. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire, and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com slash leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot com slash leaders. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.